Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. You know, it's clear when you read his writing on VerySmartBrothers.com, Damon Young is one of the sharpest, funniest, and most compelling writers out there. His new memoir is 16 essays about his life. It's titled, What Doesn't Kill You?, makes you blacker. And it reflects on Young's life from childhood to the present day. And it takes a really incisive look at many of the forces that bear down on the African-American experience. Young is going to be in town next week, Wednesday, April 17th, and he'll be speaking at the Detroit Public Library main branch about his book, about the website, VerySmartBrothers.com, and about being black in America. Damon Young, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always great to hear your voice. Uh, so this is a really this is a really great book, uh, and there are a lot of provocative ideas inside it. Uh, but let's start with the introduction, which is uh, titled <laughs> "Living While Black is an Extreme Sport," which is yeah. a it's a great phrase. <laughs> Talk about what you mean when you say that. Okay, so the intro the book starts with um, a story about how um, every year New Year's Day. Um, a group of people gather together and jump into the Monongahela River. Right. <laughs> um, and they jump in there butt naked. And, you know, Pittsburgh is not Antarctica. It, it's not going to be 30 below, but it, it does get quite cold, especially January 1st. <laughs> and so these are people who are jumping butt naked into a slush puppy, basically. <laughs> and without even knowing who these people are, I know that the people listening are picturing white people doing this. And I start off the book by talking about that and talking about other extreme sports, you know, the bungee jumping, the, the cow tipping, the, the shark wrestling, and, and whatever else, you know, is invented um, by white people very often as ways to kind of uh, to, to, fabric, to fabricate closest to death, to get adrenaline flowing, to get, you know, blood pressure rise, mm-hmm. to get fight or flight, to induce that. And we typically don't have to do that because just life. <laughs> just, life is that slush through, puppy, right? Just, just, yeah, just going, just going through life itself is exciting enough. I mean, I get excited, you know, walking through the department store and wondering, okay, are they, going, are they thinking I'm still in there? Like, <laughs> or driving and, you know, a cop follows me. Like, that's exciting. Like, I mean, that's, you know, it's nerve wracking, but that's also exciting. You know, and I don't have the, I don't have the same need to invent excitement and so <laughs> the whole living while black is an extreme sport is just a, you know it's a it's a it's somewhat satirical way of just articulating just um the angst and the anxiety that is uh just a part of our existence yeah 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 you know the the way you you describe that um i i wonder what you make of the idea of white people reading these words uh when you're when you're writing uh, things like this. I mean, obviously, this is aimed primarily, I think, uh, at a, at a at a, an audience that would be able to relate to these experiences, right? The people who've mm-hmm. had these kinds of things happen to them. But of course, there's going to be a lot of white folks who pick the book up too. Uh, what 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 uh, reaction are you kind of going for there from them? Is it understanding? Is it shock? Um, what, well, what? I I think that um, yes. So my, my experience as a 40-year-old black man from Pittsburgh, ex-basketball player, is unique to me. And, and the things that I've experienced and the things that I've seen, the things that 
the way the country sees me is, you know, it, it's very unique to me. It's very unique to, to, to be in a black America. Mm-hmm. But, but some of the themes that, that, um, that stretch, that, that connects throughout the book, the themes of anxiety, the themes of self-consciousness, the themes of, you know, having like a neurosis or having doubt or performing, those are universal. And so even if a white person, you know, maybe can't relate to that black experience or even maybe gets a little offended or, you know, hopefully has a good sense of humor and is able to take a joke, there are still these pieces about just our humanity that, that, that I believe are universal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to focus so much on that angst and that anxiety it's because when you think of those concepts, I, I feel like in, in just our general like culture, we think of like we think of like Jerry Seinfeld or Woody Allen or David Sedaris even and like these upper middle class white people who are dealing with these sorts of things and it's like, well, we deal with them too. And not only do we deal with them too, but because our world is a bit more stressful, we probably deal with them more than you all do. It's just that we don't often have the same space to articulate it. Mm, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Damon Young. He is the co-founder of the website VerySmartBrothers.com, and he's author of a new book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. He will be in town next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch talking about the book. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Are you a fan of VerySmartBrothers.com. We have had uh, Damon on the show before, as well as Panama Jackson, uh, another writer at that website. We often have them on to talk about race and racism in America, how uh, the American experience visits upon black people. Uh, Give us a call, uh, 313-577-1019, if you want to join that conversation. Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the into the conversation. Uh, Damon, as I said, there there are a lot of really provocative ideas and phrases uh, in this in this book. Uh, I want to start by talking about an essay you wrote uh, about the N word, uh, and it's Uh uh, called "Nigger Fight Story." Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Again, very provocative, but uh, but talk about that. Uh, There there are some really interesting. I think counterintuitive ideas in there about that okay. about that word. All right, so the the story I have to tell the story if we're, if I'm going to talk about right. It. <laughs> okay, so um, the chapter starts off by uh, telling the story that occurred when I was maybe five or six years old, and it involved my parents and my grandmother. So my mom and my nana, who's my mom's mom, were post Sunday brunch browsing in you know at this neighborhood deli. Um, in this neighborhood called Squirrel Hill, which is a predominantly white um, Jewish and traditionally Jewish neighborhood mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. And so there's some sort of disagreement with the, with the white boy behind a register who's probably like 18, 19 years old. And he ends up calling my mom and my grandmother black nigger, um, the B word. Mm. Okay. I don't know if I can say that on, <laughs> on, on air. Yeah. Um, and so my mom's like, wait, what did you say? And he's like, you heard me. And so my mom, like, and again, my mom's bank teller, my white, my grandmother's like white glove. These are like Pat Messini listening NPR membership, <laughs> you know. And my mom at that moment turned into the Terminator. <laughs> it was like, "We'll be right back." 
<laughs> and then go get my dad, who was shopping up the street at a, at, a, at a supermarket. My dad, they all come back to the store. And my dad approaches the white boy and asks him to apologize. And the white boy refuses. And then my dad is like, well, if you don't apologize, I'm going to count to 10. And I'm going to come back there and kick your ass with this baseball bat. My dad had a baseball bat with him. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> um, and so he starts counting. And a white boy doesn't budge because he obviously doesn't know that if a black parent starts counting, you need to start ducking because when they stop counting, furniture is going to start moving. Something is coming your way, and, right? Yeah, something's coming your way. And then, you know, altercation starts. They, you know, swing the bat and the white boy behind the register has a knife and, like, swings at my dad. In the meantime, my mom and my grandmother are, like, throwing jars of pickles and olives and ice cream, breaking glass. Like, it, it's a mess. Like, they, they basically just ruined the store, broke the glass on the outside. They end up getting arrested, um, questioned at the station, and this black sergeant or lieutenant actually lets them go because she um, explains that they were racially harassed. Mm-hmm. So no charges, no nothing. So imagine being like a five- or six-year-old, and, and you hear this story. And my parents are the type of people who repeat things over and over and over again, so I heard it. At barbecues, I heard it at funerals, I heard it, you know, I, you know, while riding, while they're driving me to school, you know, family reunions, birthday parties, and come and at that point in my life, I had never been called a nigger to my face, but wanted to have a story like my parents, and so I kind of wanted to be called one, just so I could have a story about the time <laughs> some white boy called me called me a nigger, and then I kicked his ass. And returned, just like my parents did. And so this, this, and again, the chapter just talks about how ridiculous it is to want to be called this terrible thing, just so you can have a story that that you know that that I guess kind of like proves your blackness. And again, this is a much 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 younger me, you know. And but I kept this feeling, you know, through my early teens. And then I was finally called one um, when I was like 17 years old. Um, I'm waiting for a bus. This uh, white boy drives by in a F- Ford F-150, screams out the window, and just keeps keeps going past. And so I actually wanted to call him back, like, "Yo, come on, this is I need to fight you now. This is this is it. <laughs> this is this is this is my nigger fight. This is my story. This is my story." And it was so anticlimactic because he, again, he just screamed out the window, kept going past, and it just really dawned on me at that point. The, 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 the ridiculousness of assigning any sort of my racial identity to how white people treated me. Mm. Mm. And, and again, that, that's just a realization I, I had. I think I was what, 16 or 17. It's like, yeah, this is, this is stupid. <laughs> Waiting to be called this thing just so I could have a story, just so I could consider it as this, like, this sort of rite of passage. And and having and, and allowing white people to have any sort of impact on how I how I uh, felt about myself or how I felt about my blackness. Yeah. So so one of the things that really struck me about that story is is the real difference in the two narratives, right? Uh, the, mm. And it has everything to do with context, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Your mother and your grandmother are in an establishment where somebody <clears throat> looks them in the face and says, this is basically how I think of you. Uh, and that elicits this 
you know, quite justified response. Um, at the same time, you're standing on a corner and somebody drives by and yells something out a window, the same word, it, it, it lands differently. And, and as you point out, you know, there's, there's a, a time difference here. Uh, there, there's all kinds of difference. But it, it, I think it really reminds that the power of that word um, depends something somewhat on the context, but also just depends on the frame of mind that we as black people have about how we define ourselves and how we allow others to. Yeah, and and you're right about the context. I mean, if I'm in like some some small, predominantly white town in Alabama, and someone calls me that word, then it's it's obviously like this, like you know, am, am I in danger mm-hmm. right now? It's something about to go down. But if I'm you know in one of the black neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, or I'm in Homewood, and this white boy rolls up to me and says that, it's like, yo. Do you realize where you are right now? <laughs> Do you realize <laughs> like what 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 can happen? What might and what possibly happen to you right now? Like, you know. And so you're right. Yeah. The even though that word, you know, is that word and has all this history and all of this like violence and 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 just you know oppression and and everything else attached to it. It really, you know, the level of threat and the level of violence that that it suggests really does depend on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, my parents being called, or my mom and my grandmother being called that to their face by this by this white boy is much different than I'm waiting for a bus and someone screams it at me while they're, while they're speeding past an F-150. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's a different situation. Uh, again, my guest is Damon Young, co-founder of VerySmartBrothers.com, author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. He's going to be in town next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch talking about his book. Uh, Damon, before I get to another essay that I, that I want to talk to you about from the book, I, I want you to try to put the, what you're doing here in the context of the national narrative about race right now, which uh, which I think is at once really different than what we've sort of experienced before, uh, but it's also not necessarily surfacing things that African Americans are unfamiliar with. Right, this this narrative yeah. has existed for us for a really long time, and I think what may be different now is that there are other people being exposed to it, maybe participating in it, and and thinking about uh, how race and racism shape life here uh, in this country. But I, but I wonder, as someone publishing a book with essays that are so dense with that narrative and different parts of that narrative, um, what you make of the relationship between the two. What is it that you're trying to add, I guess, to that narrative? Well, um... Oh, the, the 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 easiest answer is me. I'm trying, I'm trying to <laughs> insert some of me to that in my mm-hmm. experience, and mm-hmm. my thoughts, and my feelings, my observations. Um, but if I if I were to extrapolate, you know, extrapolate out, then um, I, I think that so much of the conversation, you know, about race in America or about black people, blackness, um, deals with these opposite ends of the spectrum, where there's this this focus on like trauma. Which is necessary, mm-hmm. you know, you know, because the trauma exists, um, and sometimes, you know, the the focus seems a little voyeuristic, 
where even, you know, the white people who may be considering themselves to be allies or liberal or whatever have like this obsession with with black pain and black pathology and you know, it's almost like trauma porn. Um, and so you have that. And then you have on the opposite end of the spectrum, like the black excellence. You know, the the people who are you know, the, the kid who got accepted to ninety seven <laughs> Ivy League schools right. and you know, Oprah Winfrey and you know, just just like these, you know, the the, the top, you know, one percent or top five percent of 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 uh, black achievement. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really exist at either end of that spectrum. And I think most of us exist somewhere in the middle. And, you know, the stories in my book are, are I guess, examinations and deconstructions of that middle. Hmm. And I touched on this, you know, a bit earlier about that anxiety, that angst, that self-consciousness, that neurosis, those neuroses, and how those converge. And, you know, this book is, it's not a look at like, okay, this person had this terrible racial, you know, terrible act of hate happen to him, and this is how he reacted. It's more of, okay, this is one black man from Pittsburgh who is trying to find space to survive and thrive while in this country that is so racist and so like just, where racism is such an essential part of its foundation that it can induce a claustrophobia and also just this Kafkaesque feeling where you're not quite sure if things are happening to you because you're black or things are just happening because they're happening. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that constant state of being again can create just this deep anxiety and much of the, you know, and much of the, 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 many of the chapters in the book kind of deal with that. And also deal with some of the um, some of the effects of that, like economic anxiety is a recurring theme mm-hmm. throughout the book. Um, and you know, as as I continue with the book, I I I, I connect it to this white supremacy, where you know, yes, my parents struggled, and yes, I struggled um, for you know the first you know ten or ten or twelve years of my adulthood, um, and you can't divorce that struggle from just the connection between white supremacy and capitalism and how if you're black in America, even if you've had a little bit of, a little bit of success, a little bit of financial, you know, privilege or whatever, that status is still tenuous. That status is still precarious because, you know, if you are a black American, it could be snatched away. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Damon Young, co-founder of VerySmartBrothers.com. We're going to talk about an essay in his book called Living While Black Killed My Mom. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, 
Thanks very much for joining us. My guest is Damon Young. He's the co-founder of VerySmartBrothers.com and author of a new book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, a collection of 16 essays about his life and the African-American experience. You can check Damon out next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward, where he will be talking about his book. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Tim in Detroit and Abdul and Frazier are already on the line and we will get to them in just a second. Uh, but Damon, I want to talk about this essay in the book called Living While Black Killed My Mom, uh, which I think is one of the most powerful essays uh, in the book. It talks about uh, your mom's uh, death. And I, I want to read a, a short excerpt before I get you to talk about it. Um, you say, I Think about how mom might still be here if she were white or maybe just a fair skinned black woman with caramel brulee latte skin instead of the Snickers tinted pigment she possessed and I inherited from her. I think about how mom might still be here if she decided to stop smoking after 20 years instead of 30. I wonder if the stress and the pressure from existing as our family's only stable income for a decade permeated, consumed and overwhelmed her. And I think about whether that drove her to smoke for 30 years instead of 20. I think about how she fed me with her body and how I ate from and off of her like she was a transubstantiating deity instead of a person, a flesh and vessel and marrow and blood human being. I think about how she had the world's fluffiest afro in the 70s and the world's juiciest jerry curl in the 80s and loved Michelle Obama and Tina Turner and reading Toni Morrison and listening to Steely Dan and Jill Scott and Ivan Lins and going to shows at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild when Pat Metheny was in town. It's such a great passage, uh, such a wonderful way to describe your mom. Talk about this essay and what you're, what you're trying to communicate about why and how your mom left you. Yeah, so... Um It'll be uh, it'll be six years, and in, um, in October, since my mom passed. Um, she was she was sixty um, when, when she when she when she died, and um, she died a year after she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, doctors gave her six months, and you know, as I say in the book, she she took those six and then stole away six more. Um, and I just remember when I think about my mom, I, you know, I remember my mom, of course, and I remember just how sweet and loving and, and mom, how mom my mom was, but also the years before she was diagnosed, when she would complain about this back pain and these stomach aches and these headaches, and she would go to the doctor and they'd say, hey, you know, you need to take more Advil or take less Advil hmm. or get more exercise or drink less pop. And those are all, obviously, those are all good things. That's all good advice. But it just, I, 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 I don't believe that her pain was taken as seriously. 
and 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 perhaps if her pain were taken more seriously, maybe a treatment would have happened. Maybe a test would have been ordered. May, maybe something different would have happened where it would have been caught and she might still be with us today. And, and that belief about her pain not being taken as seriously, that exists with the historical context of that being a reality for, for black people, particularly for black women. For black women, yeah. In America. You know, um, I don't I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but, you know, we could just we could cite Serena Williams. Who, you know, as as many of us know, almost died in childbirth or after childbirth mm-hmm. because the um, the nurses or whatever in a maternity ward. Didn't take her 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 pain, weren't taking her pain seriously, where she just had gave birth to her daughter. And she knew that something was wrong with her body. She knew that, you know, something just wasn't right. Something just wasn't, something was off. And she kept saying this to the nurses and they kept saying, well, you just had a baby. You're fine. You know, you're healthy. You're fine. You're, you're okay. And this back and forth continued for, I think for almost like a day, maybe two days. And then they finally took whatever test they needed to take and discovered that, yeah, if they would have sent her home, that she may have died. Sure. And this is Serena Williams. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is someone with all the all the all the all the power, all the status, all the money, you know, in, in the world. And she was still her pain was still minimized. Her pain was still ignored. So if 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 a woman like Serena Williams, that one of the greatest athletes of all time, is treated like this, what about my mom? What chance does your mother have, right? Or my, my my wife, my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, like how are they going to be treated when they go to the doctor and they complain or they have a they have an issue? Are they going to be treated, you know, fairly? Are they going to be treated seriously? Is their pain going to register the same way a white woman's pain would register? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very powerful essay, and of course, uh, it's it connects so palpably to that more b- sort of general experience that uh, that African Americans have uh, with health and with health care. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome uh, to Detroit today. Yeah, and hey, uh, and talking about you know, reactions to people people's comments. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, our self-image. I, I mean, if if we really knew who we were, I, I think we'd be less likely to get upset by comments. But that's our identity. But then another part of it is that white folks' identity is, is tied up with black people. Hmm. And if they recognize us, I think they feel that they lose something. <laughs> and that's, that's part of the problem. That's something that they have to work on. That, that's something that they have to work on. Until that happens, you know, it's, it's just going to be problems. Yeah, Tim, that's a really great uh, that's a really great insight. I'm glad you called uh, and shared that, uh, Damon. The, this idea that that often the reaction to what people say is caught up in uh, not knowing who you are and not understanding who you are. I mean, I, th- I think that comes through a bit in your in your essay. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and to, you know, Tim's other point about how white people kind of need mm-hmm. um, black people to be in, you know, whatever position, you know, that that they want to keep us in in order to re- to retain their status or retain their self-esteem. That's the truth. And that's the thing that's the thing that I actually write on. I write about in the book in the last chapter. You know, we, we know that race was invented. That these that these distinctions, you know, were invented, and you know, it, it is not that race led to racism. Racism led to race. Led to race, right? It's an yeah. invention, right? Like wanting to separate and wanting to, you know, to subjugate and and and, and wanting to have a justification for bias that led to race. And so, um, so yeah, you know, it's it's one of them things where you real once you realize that you realize the futility of of assigning any sort of value to how white people feel about black people. Hmm. That's right. That's very powerful. Uh, let's go to let's go to Renata in Livonia, Renata. Welcome to Detroit today. Hi, I was just calling in with the comment that I, I had a medical scare, and you really need to be your own advocate because doctors, if it doesn't fall in their their little box and you know they can easily diagnose it, you're going to have a challenge. I was eventually, after a year and a half, diagnosed with Lyme, and I had to push, push, push. You know, doctors would poo-poo me. You're a woman. You sure it's not in your head? You know, and it was horrible. Mm. And with my brother, he was misdiagnosed with a cancer diagnosis, and he was overweight, and he had back problems. He ended up dying of cancer. So it's not just a black thing. I mean, it's sometimes they think it's a medical thing. They mm. just want to easily diagnose, and if you don't fit in, then you're going to struggle. And you got to advocate, advocate, push, push, and, you know, keep at it. Yeah. But Renata, I really appreciate the call and and that perspective. Uh, you know, Damon Young. There's no question that uh, African Americans aren't the only people who see this kind of reaction to them. Uh, women, I think, uh, obviously, uh, in general, whether they're black or not, uh, experience these kinds of things, and lots of other people do. But I, I think there is something particular and peculiar about the experience that attends being African-American that makes all of these things worse. I always say uh, race is an aggravator in any situation. So if you take something that is unequal to begin with, it becomes more unequal when you inject race into the equation. And I don't mean to, to, to push back at all really against what Renata is saying, which is that a lot of people experience unequal treatment in the medical system. It's just that uh, you, you can't divorce race from, from any situation in, in a society that's built still on the idea of inequality. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and again, I, I, I agree, you know, with what uh, Renata said in terms of, you know, the medical, you know, black people aren't the only people um, who, who um, deal with uh, misdiagnosis and deal with, you know, their pain not being taken seriously. And women, black women, white women, you know, women across the board are are also um, taught or also told that, you know, oh, this is in your head or, you know, are you, are you, are you, are you sure that this pain is happening? Um, and so, yeah, that is true. But it is also true, as you were saying, that black people, that, that race is a, is a, is a, 
you know, what, what was the word you used? Aggravator, um, yeah. Ag- aggravator, yeah. And we have studies, like even today, that show that doctors, you know, I think there was a study um, in the New York Times or whatever that showed, that did a study on, like, these doctors or med students at the University of Virginia. I think it was the University of Virginia. I might be getting it wrong. But anyway, showed that these were med students mm-hmm. who still believed that black people have like this supernatural tolerance for pain, mm. you know. And and again, these are these aren't like doctors who have been doctors for for years. These are young people, newly minted, who, right? Yeah. Who newly minted, you know, who you would he, who you would hope didn't still harbor these beliefs. And so that 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 pain tolerance thing is a recurring thing just throughout just throughout how I guess America feels and feels feels about black people, particularly black women, and even how black people treat black women. Yeah. Where it's like, you know what, she'll be all right. She's the rock. She can handle it. She's gonna hold us down. She's gonna hold the community down. And with all of that who was holding black women down? Right. Where's the care for them? Who's going to be their rock? Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Okay. All right. Damon Young, co-founder of VerySmartBrothers.com, author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. We will see you next Wednesday here in Detroit at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library. Thanks for being yes, with us on yes, Detroit uh, Today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Always yeah. great to talk it was with you. a great conversation. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk with Jeff Kasky. He is uh, the father of two sons who were in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School during the Parkland shooting last year. Uh, they were okay, but that inspired Jeff and his son to start a very important conversation about gun control. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's conversation, you don't have to miss out on the show altogether. You can just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Thank you.